OK, so let's get started. Um, we're going to continue talking about polarization and birefringence today. And we'll look at how these concepts are used to produce physical devices that are useful, mainly modulators. Um, so here's the schedule. I just mentioned this. Um, we have a midterm coming up a week from today. It'll be on chapter 12, 14, and 15. So 12 was diffraction gratings. 14 and 15 are polarization. We'll have one day for review before the final on the 21st. Mark? Um, can we find out our grade on the last day of class? Yes. Yeah. So by the last day of classes, you'll have your grade. You can figure out whether or not you want to take the final. So you get the higher of your final or your grade as of the last day of class. The final is just the final grade or is it the homework? Series? I'll include the homework in that. Yeah. OK, so we'll talk about um, retarders. Or we, we'll review retarders since we talked about that last time. Quarter wave plates, half wave plates, um, and other forms of birefringence. And then we'll look at birefringence that can be manipulated electronically. And that produces what we call optical modulators, devices that use birefringence to allow you to control the polarization state with electronics. And we'll also talk about um, optical activity, which is closely related to birefringence. We'll see some useful examples of how that can be used in a laboratory. OK, so we said retarders were devices that um, delayed the light going through them. And that's, in general, what we mean by retarding. But um, typically, when we talk about a retarder, we're talking about a birefringent retarder, one that has a different delay depending on the polarization state. So there's a particular delay for the y polarization, delay for the x polarization, and that gives rise to a phase difference between the x and y polarization components when they go through the, the device. So that was our Jones matrix. That re represented a phase delay, the y component relative to the x. And we saw that if that phase delay was equal to pi over 2, that's a quarter of 2 pi. It's a quarter of a wavelength. So we called that a quarter wave plate. And the effect it had on light depends on its orientation. So if the light is linearly polarized and it's along either the fast or slow axis, then all it does is delay that light. It's a different amount of delay depending on whether it's on the fast axis or the slow axis. If it's at 45 degrees with respect to those axes, one component gets delayed more than the other. It gets delayed by a quarter wavelength more. And that produces this circular polarization state at the output. Okay, so these are useful for converting linear to circular polarization. And of course, if you go back in the other direction, this circular polarization would get converted to linear. So it can convert between the two polarization states. But it requires its, uh, its optical axis be aligned appropriately to the input state polarization. Um, yeah, so light going in should be aligned at 45 degrees, linear polarization, to produce circular. Circular polarization, how would you align the optical axis, or, or what would you be aligning the optical axes to if you had circular polarization? In linear polarization, there's a direction defined by the polarization state. In circular polarization, there's not. It's circular. Right? Um, would you align the fast axis with the part of the, the 
Well, what direction is that? Right, so the electric field vector is tracing out a circular path. It doesn't matter. Whatever direction you define, let's say you put in your wave plate and its fast axis is here and your slow axis is here, the light is going to end up linearly polarized at 45 degrees with respect to those axes. So by changing the angle of the quarter wave plate, you could change the angle of the linearly polarized output light. A half wave plate was a retarder that had a phase retardation of pi. That's half of 2 pi, half of a full wave. So call it a half wave plate. And so e to the i pi is minus 1. So it delays one polarization 180 degrees, or pi, with respect to the other. So one polarization has its amplitude changed or inverted. And as a result, if you have, let me draw this so that you can see the steps. If you have your wave plate with fast and slow axes, as drawn here. It doesn't matter which one of these is fast, which one's slow, for our purposes. And then you have some arbitrary polarization state coming in. You can break that into components along the two principal axes. And so let's just call, um, let's say this is, this is x and this is y. And according to our Jones vector, it's going to invert the y component. So if it inverts the y component, the output light is going to have a polarization. I'll draw it in green. That's changed. And if we describe the input angle of the polarization relative to the x-axis, then the output angle has changed by 2 theta. And it turns out if we describe the input angle with respect to the y-axis, then its output angle still changes by 2 theta. And linear polarization at this direction is the same as linear polarization at that direction except for a 180-degree phase shift. So we say the effect of a half-wave plate is to rotate the polarization by twice the angle between the linear polarization and the wave plate. Okay, so it's used as a polarizing, or as a polarization rotator. Now, when you buy a wave plate, you can get two different types of wave plates. Um, that are distinguished by the wave plate order. So the phase difference, we said, comes from some birefringence, some difference in the index of refraction for the two different polarization states. And the optical path length going through a thickness d is the index of refraction times d. The phase is k times the optical path length. So the phase difference is 2 pi over lambda delta n times d. And if you were to 
find how thick a piece of quartz, for example, needs to be to produce pi over 2 quarter wave plate of phase retardation. You look up the values for n, and it has a certain amount of birefringence. Plug in the wavelength you want. You calculate d, you find that the thickness is only a few tens of microns. So that's mechanically unstable. You can't ship a product that's a few tens of microns thick and expect it not to break. So typically, so I guess here's the thickness for quartz, 100 microns. Um, and that would be what we call a zero order wave plate. So more commonly, what you can get, or at least what you can get more inexpensively, is called a multi order wave plate. And for a multi order wave plate, this phase difference is not equal to pi over 2 for a quarter wave plate or pi for a half wave plate. It's some integer multiple of 2 pi plus that additional phase difference. Okay, so um, typically, for, again, for quartz, it's about 10, 10 full waves of retardation plus a quarter wave or plus a half wave, depending on whether it's a quarter wave plate or a half wave plate. And that gives a thickness of about a millimeter. So you have something sort of like a microscope slide in thickness. It's just a little, would look like a little glass window. Um, okay, so at the wavelength of interest, when illuminated at normal incidence, that will behave, a, a multi-order wave plate will behave just like a zero-order wave plate. Okay, so um, that's fine if it's being used those exact conditions, but there are some, uh, some issues that come up that degrade the performance of a multi-order wave plate. One of them is dispersion. If you're not working with a single wavelength, but you have a spread in wavelengths, either because you have modulation on your beam, or you have a tunable beam, or you're not using perfectly monochromatic light, you might have multiple um, and you might be using light from an LED or something other than a laser. Um, so if we look at the phase delay, or the, the birefringence of the material, um, the phase birefringence, we see it's a function of wavelength. So something that's a half a wavelength for green light is, would only be like a quarter wavelength for infrared. For near infrared. And so if we differentiate this, if we have dispersion so that the, uh, we have different wavelengths, we can differentiate this with respect to wavelength. Okay, and if we're just concerned about the dispersion, that means the index of refraction is different for the different wavelengths. Or if we're worried about the fact that we have different wavelengths, then I guess this would be a minus, this should be a lambda squared in the denominator, which is actually what's in the notes that you printed out. I changed that this morning because I was thinking about dispersion, not about the uh, other effect. So the change in the retardance as a function of wavelength is greater as the wave plate gets thicker. If you have a wave plate that's only a quarter wavelength 
of retardation versus one that's 20 waves plus a quarter, you're going to have, with a thicker wave plate, you're going through more material and you get um, that much more of an effect from dispersion, that much more of an effect from the wavelength being different from its nominal value. Um, it's also an issue if you tilt the wave plate, then the thickness that you go through is not d, the physical thickness, but it's d over cosine theta, angle to tilt. So the alignment sensitivity of a multi-order wave plate is tighter than a zero-order wave plate. The thermal stability is an issue. Right? If the temperature is going to fluctuate, that's going to change the thickness due to the thermal expansion. And so the birefringence is going to be affected less if the thickness is small to begin with than if it's large and you get a thermal expansion. Okay, so. Multi-order wave plates work at their nominal parameters just as well as zero-order wave plates, but they're not as tolerant to deviations from those parameters. Um, so the zero-order wave, you can buy zero-order wave plates. They're about twice as expensive. They're not 10 to 100 micron thick pieces of glass. Instead, they're two multi-order wave plates that are, um, that are glued together at 90 degrees so that you get like plus 10 waves of, dis of birefringence in the first one and then like minus 9.5 in the second to net to get a net phase difference between the two wave plates of whatever, whatever birefringence you're looking for. Okay, so you can get a physical thickness that's still reasonable thickness, but the, uh, the phase differences, most of the phase differences cancel out. And that's going to be the same thing. If you tilt the wave plate, you increase the path length, you increase the phase delay of one, you increase the phase delay of the other, but you don't increase the phase difference as much. Okay, so um, let's look at a couple, couple example problems that involve wave plates. Let's look at light going through a linear polarizer followed by a half wave plate with its fast axis at 45 degrees. So we'll start with unpolarized light. Propagates through a linear polarizer. It doesn't say the angle of the linear polarizer, so let's just assume its transmission axis is along x. And then a half wave plate with its fast axis at 45 degrees with respect to the transmission angle. So that's with respect to x. OK, so what is the polarization state coming out of this? So what, if we have unpolarized light coming in, what gets through the polarizer? Linear, and in our case it's along x or it's horizontal. And then what effect does the half wave plate have on it? It rotates it. So it's rotate, the wave plate is rotated at 45 degrees. So how much does that rotate the polarization? 
Yeah, 90 degrees. So the output state is linearly polarized at 90 degrees. Um, what if you had light going in the opposite direction? So you just turn this around, and now your unpolarized light is incident from the right. What's the polarization state after the half-wave plate? Still unpolarized. So every polarization, you have basically you can think of it as polarization, you've got all, all polarizations sort of simultaneously with random phases. They all get rotated by 90 degrees, but since you had a bunch of random phases and random amplitudes for the polarization, you, that's still what you have. And then you go through the polarizer and you end up with linear horizontal polarization. So in one direction, this is going to produce vertical polarization. In the other direction, it's going to produce horizontal polarization. You can think of it as a direction-dependent polarizer when you put them together. Um, what happens if we replace that half-wave plate with a quarter-wave plate? What happens to this linear polarization after it goes through that quarter wave plate? It becomes circular, yeah. And if the fast axis, let's see if we can figure this out. If the fast axis is here, this gets advanced relative to that. So if the light was at 0 degrees, what comes out is, um, let's see, if you look at an oscillation that starts at a maximum value and then goes to a minimum value, um, the component along the fast axis propagates through first. And then along the slow axis, that builds up as the component along the fast axis goes down. So we get polarization like this. And when viewed from an observer looking towards the light, that would be right-handed circular polarization. In the other direction, what polarization state do we get? It's unpolarized right here. And then it goes through the linear polarizer. So you can get linear polarization. OK, so um, wave plates are made out of materials that are birefringent. And so we can understand a little bit the mechanism that produces the birefringence. If we think about the structure of the material, and these are um, ordered structure. Oh, this is an ordered structure. It's, I guess that's salt, sodium chloride. Here's calcite. These are crystals. That's why they have ordered structure. Glass is unordered. This is an amorphous polymer, but same thing for a glass. You just have a random orientation of individual, um, individual molecules. So in a glass, 
there's no order, there's no structure, there's no defined directions. Right? So there's no reason that any one axis would have a f different index of refraction than another. Gregor? If you have order in a glass, you have a crystal. Okay, so if you take fused silica, which is window glass, and then you heat it up so that it's molten, and then you cool it down slowly so that the molecules have a chance to move around and order themselves, you get quartz, which is a crystal. If you cool it down fast so the molecules don't have a chance to move around, you get glass. So the material is the same. It's silica dioxide. It's sand, silicon and oxygen. But the lack of order is what de defines something as a glass. An ordered material is a crystal. Okay, so if it's ordered, then there's some preferred direction, or there's some, um, some basis for choosing a coordinate system in the crystal right, along the direction of the crystal crystal grains. And so what happens is a wave that comes in, an electric field that's oscillating, is going to take the electrons that are bound to these atoms and shake them around. And the amount of displacement of those electrons depends on how hard the restoring force is. And it's going to be a function of a couple things. It's going to be a function of which atoms the electrons are bound to, and it's also a function of which direction they're being pulled. Okay, because if you're pulling in a direction, well, if, if you've got this order, then you can imagine that um, these electrons are bound by, you can imagine springs connecting them to their nearest neighbors. Right? In some directions, you're pulling against those springs, in other directions, you're not. Okay, or if you have different maybe over here in calcite. Some of the neighbors are one, one particular uh, type of atom, and in another direction, they're a different type of atom. And so you get contributions from the neighboring atoms pulling on the electrons that differ depending on direction. So the amount of displacement you can get depends on the direction in which you're trying to displace it. And that directly produces uh, a delay in the the wave propagating through, which gives rise to the index of refraction. Okay, so it would take about two lectures to derive the uh, motion of a molecule producing a change in the index of refraction. And uh, at least two of you in here have sat through two of those lectures. <laughs> I'm not going to do it here. But, um, but that's what gives rise to a different index of refraction for light polarized in different directions. So here's an expression for the index of refraction related to um, the charge on the electrons, their resonant frequency of oscillation. If you think of them as little mass attached to an electromagnetic spring pulling them back, driven at a particular frequency. And if you're taking mechanics right now, you may recognize this as the solution of the displacement of a driven harmonic oscillator. Gregory? Well, it's a model. It's called the classical electron oscillator model. And it's the model that's used to describe the index of refraction for any material um, where the 
charges are bound. Now that doesn't, that doesn't apply to conductors, metals, okay, but it, it does apply to all the dielectrics, so things that are transparent that we would be dealing with. So every optic that, from water, air, glass, and uh, crystals that we'd typically think of as an optical material. So bottom line is the index of refraction depends on the, the polarization direction, and it requires if, and it, that's only the case when there's some, some uh, alignment of the atoms or molecules in the material. So if you will, when the material is made up of covalent or ionic bonding? That would still apply. It would still apply. Your, char your charges may not be the electrons, a free electron around a single mass. It might be an electron in a shared between two molecules, or it could even be the, the molecular uh, nuclei themselves oscillating. Um, okay, so if the index of refraction depends on direction, we can describe or we can we can draw a picture for what the index of refraction is, a graph of the index of refraction is a function of polarization direction. So there's three possible directions in space. And so for any given direction, there's a given index of refraction. And it will trace out an ellipse, or an ellipsoid, I should say. So if we have a material where there's a different index of refraction for x, y, and z, and we get different values for x, y, and z, and at any point, in any polarization direction that's not along x, y, or z, you can break the polarization up into a x, y, and z component. And each of those components travel at, with an index of refraction given by the x, y, and z components. And you get some effective index that's a combination. So if we consider a wave propagating along z, its polarization has to be in the x, y plane. So this picture here shows that in the xy plane, this index ellipsoid intersects the xy plane in an ellipse. So the index of refraction seen by the light in that plane is a function of its angle in the plane. Okay, so theta is the angle with respect to the x-axis. So if the polarization is along x, the index should be what we call nx. So theta is equal to 0, this term becomes 1, the index is nx. If it's along y, there's a different polarization, which we call ny. So that would be theta equals 90 degrees. So this term would be 1, this term would be 0. And at any point in between, we get this combination, which just describes mathematically this ellipse. Okay, So we'll use this in a second. Um, What's interesting is there's a particular direction that light can propagate. In this particular diagram, it's in the xz plane, like this, such that the, the plane of polarization, which is always perpendicular to the direction of propagation, would cross through this index ellipsoid and trace out a circle. Okay, so if you like, in this picture, think of light propagating along z. It's transverse plane is xy. As we tilt it along towards x, it's like taking this, uh, this intersecting plane and tilting it up. 
And that's not going to change the length of the, the y-axis of this, in this ellipse of intersection. But as you tilt it, this point here is going to get further and further away from the center until it's eventually at nz. And so there must be a point, if, if nz is greater than ny is greater than x, there must be a point where the minor axis of this ellipse equals the major axis. And it's a circle. And it's called the optical axis. So there's different, different types of crystals that have names like biaxial, uniaxial, which refer to how many of these axes they have. So a biaxial crystal is one that has two different possible axes, optical axes. So in this picture, I said, if light propagates in some direction in the xz plane, then the intersection of this uh, the plane of polarization with this ellipsoid would be a circle. Well, this is a symmetric ellipse, so it could also propagate in the other direction, sort of into the board instead of out of the board, and have the same case. So there's two possible directions of polarization where the index of refraction is independent of polarization. So there's two axes. We call that a biaxial crystal. Yeah, so there's the axes. A uniaxial crystal. Oops. is one where there's only where nx equals ny, where two of the um, where there's symmetry in one direction and an asymmetry in the other. In that case, light propagating here along z, you take the uh, ellipse in the xy plane, that's a circle due to the symmetry. So you can have a positive uniaxial or a negative uniaxial, depending on whether nz is greater than or less than nx and ny. So these last like two slides are pretty much uh, the entire content of uh, Physics 208. So if any of this is interesting to you, this is just a plug for that class. It'll be taught in another year, I think. Gregory? Well, this index ellipsoid has a different value for nx, ny, and nz. And this has the same value for nx and ny. And then nz is greater. It's not really that obvious. I, could, I can show you a three-dimensional model where we can spin around. You can see that if you're interested after class. OK, so um, let's look at an induced birefringence. We've seen this already. But we said that the uh, jewel case has birefringence, not because this is a crystal. This is plastic. It's amorphous. But in the process of stamping it, strain gets introduced, which orders the molecules. Right? And so that gives rise to a birefringence. Now you see colors. Right? Can someone explain why we see colors? Well, the thickness of the, let's assume the thickness of the material is constant throughout. So we said, what was the difference? One of the reasons that zero-order wave plates are better than multi-order wave plates is the dependence on wavelength in the retardation. So retardation is wavelength dependent. It's 
So depending on how much birefringence there is, this can be, you know, this can produce a phase difference. It, as a function of wavelength, the phase difference will be different. So different regions of the plastic have different amounts of birefringence. That means different wavelengths will see, a, in this case, a half a wave of retardation is what's necessary for the light to get rotated by 90 degrees and transmit through the, if I cross the polarizers, for the light to be rotated by 90 degrees and cross through the polarizers. Um, as I change the angle of this, we see the patterns shift around. It's because the birefringence is not always aligned to the same and the direction of the alignment of the material varies throughout the, uh, throughout the jewel case. So as I rotate it, different parts of the jewel case are oriented at 45 degrees with respect to my polarizers. He said that's the optimal angle for it to rotate the light so that it's not blocked by these polarizers. Um, and in order for it to rotate the light by 90 degrees, it needs to have a half a wave of birefringence or some integer number of wavelengths plus a half a wave. And that occurs as the birefringence changes across this material, that occurs at different wavelengths, hence the colors. So that's a form of birefringence. It's just induced by stress, not by any uh, natural ordering of the molecules. You can also see this. I don't have one with me because I didn't pack peanut butter and jelly today. But, um, if you take a zip, not a Ziploc, but a sandwich bag, Sandwich bags are just sheets of plastic that are rolled off of a, of a machine. And in the process, they get stretched out in one direction. And they act like a wave plate with a pretty well-defined axis. And you can put it between the cross polarizers. And as you rotate it, you can really use it like a wave plate. If you align it to the polarization axis, it doesn't do anything. If you put it at 45 degrees, it transmits light. Um, and then calcite is a natural crystal that we saw that has birefringence. Um, quartz is another. So let me get out, again, the calcite and a piece of quartz. I'll pass these around. Quartz is, is used to make wave plates. And I'll pass around a polarizer with each one. So one of the things you can do is you can look through, like you did before, you should see two images of whatever is underneath, but as you put the polarizer above it, we should be able to, to see is that those two images have different polarization states. So depending on the orientation of the polarizer, you can select one image or the other. Now we can understand why this happens if we consider a couple things. One is the fact that this is a crystal means that there's this index ellipsoid associated with it. There's a difference in the speed of propagation depending on direction. The other thing that we need to think about is Fermat's principle. Okay, and then when we're done, we'll describe why we see this in calcite, why we don't see it in quartz. Okay, so calcite has natural cleavage planes that cause its shape that are at an angle with respect to the axis with respect to the optical axis. So the optical axis is at some 
some angle that makes a fairly large angle with respect to any of the faces of the material. So if we think about light going through this material, um, about light going through the material in a downward direction. And this is, let's say, the xz plane. So I guess y would be into the board. And now, as we send light through in the z direction, the light can be polarized in x or it can be polarized in y. Right? So let's consider those two possible polarization directions. If the light instead propagates at an angle in the xz plane, It can still be polarized along y, or the component that was polarized along x would then have a direction that's orthogonal to the propagation direction. And if we look at this index ellipse in the xz plane, as the angle of incidence changes, the index of refraction, which is what's plotted by this ellipse, changes. It's going to start, as I've drawn it, at some minimum value. As I increase the angle with respect to z, the index gets larger. Okay. For the component that started along x, the component that started along y, its polarization doesn't change. Right? When you change the angle of incidence, it's, it's always able to be polarized along y, so its polarization direction doesn't change. Okay. So what is Fermat's principle tell us, and how does that relate to this? Someone remind me of what Fermat's principle is? A one sentence description of it? Gregory? Perfect. Okay, so light takes the shortest path, gets through the material as fast as it can, is, is a very um, straightforward way of explaining it. And so typically, if you're sending light in at normal incidence, the fastest way through the material is to go straight through. Right? You travel through the least amount of material. And because the material has some index of refraction, it's slower to go through the material. So going straight through minimizes the path length. However, I should draw this index a little bit differently. case of calcite, what we find is that light going in at an angle, one polarization, in this case the y polarization, doesn't depend on the angle of incidence. The index of refraction it sees is independent of the angle of incidence. That's what we have in normal glass, and that goes straight through. 
Because it goes straight through, we call it the ordinary ray. But the light that's polarized in the xz plane, as you change the angle of incidence, you change the angle of polarization. And we saw that that was a function, or the index of refraction was a function of that angle. Okay, so the optical path length, which is the index of refraction times the physical path length. So if the thickness is d and it propagates through at an angle of theta, this hypotenuse of the triangle is d over cosine theta. And if the index of refraction is independent of theta, this optical path length is minimized when, theta, when cosine theta is maximized. Right? which is that theta equals 0. So the ordinary ray goes straight through. That's what Fermat's principle tells us about the ordinary ray. The extraordinary ray, that's the, the other ray, sees an index of refraction that's a function of theta. And that index is going to be greatest when it's going straight through and least when it's going at 90 degrees. So if you take and find the minima of this function, it's not at theta equals 0. At theta equals 0, the denominator is a maximum, but the numerator is not a minimum. So you just have to plug in this expression for n, differentiate, set it equal to 0, and you can find the angle at which the light would propagate through. All I want to point out is it's not 0. So Fermat's principle explains, then, why the other polarization goes through at an angle. You can imagine you're crossing the street, right? or maybe not the street, but a busy sidewalk or a hallway. So I need to get to my office, which is across here. Class lets out, everyone's walking. Right? Um, I can move faster through the hallway when I follow traffic than if I just go straight across it. Right? So the fastest way for me to get across the hallway is not to go straight across, but it's to go at an angle so that I'm sort of following the traffic. Right, which is what I would do. Okay. If there's not traffic, I would go straight across. It's sort of an analogy of this effect. So when you shine the light into Well, so if you have polarization, it doesn't necessarily choose. What happens is you have a particular polarization. We described it in terms of um, what we call the principal polarizations, x, y, and z, that are aligned to the coordinate system of the calcite. So if you have some component in the xy plane, or some polarization in the xy plane, some component is along x, some component is along y. The component that's along y goes straight through. The component that's along x does not. It goes at an angle. Okay, And so you can take the the, uh, the polarizer, and as you rotate it, you're changing the polarization state of the input light. And when you do that, you don't see, you don't see the light move between these points. You see this turn on and off and this turn on and off. 
there's no, no way you can get the light to go through at a different angle. You just change how much of the light is going through at this angle, how much is going through at that angle. Why don't we see that in the quartz? Well, it's birefringent. I mean, it's, it's a, quartz is a uniaxial crystal. Um, but a couple things. The cleavage planes need to be such that the optical axis is at an angle. The optical axis is aligned to the normal of the cleavage planes then your light is, uh, the index of refraction is independent of the angle. Um, you actually can get double refraction in quartz if you aren't looking normal to the quartz, but looking in at the right angle. Okay, but it's a much smaller effect and not as obvious as in calcite. Okay, so that's one type of birefringence. Um, it's what we call uh, linear birefringence. There's also what we'll call circular birefringence. We said that any polarization state could be described in a linear basis set or a Cartesian basis set where we have X, Y, and Z polarization. We said you can also describe it in terms of circular polarization states. Right? Since X and Y polarization themselves can be described in terms of left and right circular polarization. There are some materials that have order to them, but the order is not some sort of Cartesian grid. Uh, it comes from the materials being helical. You can think of DNA as being a helical molecule, but there's a lot of other ones. Uh, any sugar has some helicity to it or chirality to it. And as a result, it causes light that's polarized along the or is, has an electric field that's following a trajectory um, in the same direction as the helix or opposite the direction as the helix to have two different indices of refraction. It's a very similar mechanism to the linear birefringence. And that we call optical activity rather than birefringence. It's the same, same basic physics, but it's a difference in the left and right circular polarization indices of refraction rather than the linear polarization states. So a chiral molecule is, doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a helix, although that's a, a simple model to imagine, but any molecule where there's some handedness. Okay, so here's a molecule that has um, where you can invert if you move this hydrogen over here and all the other molecules around this carbon, you can invert it and get a right-handed or a left-handed version of the molecule. Right? So any molecule that has this difference between a left-handed and a right-handed version can produce this optical activity. And so if you think of linear polarization as being comprised of two circular polarizing beams going in opposite directions, so they add up to produce linear polarization. If those circular beams travel at different speeds through the material, 
Then they'll come out with a phase difference. And that, the effect of that will be to rotate the polarization state of the light. Okay, so if we think about two circular polarization states that add up to produce linear polarization. If we delay one with respect to the other, and then we add them up, we still get linear polarization, but the direction of polarization has changed. Okay, so quartz is an example of a material that's optically active. Another material that's optically active is corn syrup. I said anything with sugar. Corn syrup, pretty much sugar. Is has helical molecules and will be optically active. Gregory? I know nothing about the molecular structure of fat, sorry. Nor do I know anything about it, the optical activity of fat, so I, I can't say necessarily that it's not. But um, I can say that sugar solution is quartz and corn syrup are. I think I already have done this in class, but I can take cross polarizers, insert corn syrup between them and get transmission. And I should be able to rotate one of the polarizers such that that transmission is extinct. What you probably notice is all that's really happening is the color is changing. Right? Again, the amount of birefringence is wavelength dependent. So the amount of polarization rotation is different for the different wavelengths. So I can make you know, one color extinct. I can't I tell what you're seeing from my angle, but you have to make the red extinct and the blue not, or vice versa. Um, what's different here than with the wave plate is that, okay, I need help. <laughs> Mark? Two hands is not enough. What's different here is that if I rotate the corn syrup, it has no effect. Right? If I rotated a wave plate and here is a sheet of mica that acts as a wave plate. You see the intensity and the pattern change. Right? If it's aligned, if the optical axes, thank you, are aligned to the um, polarization of the light, it has no effect. If it's at an angle with respect to the polarization of the light, then it rotates the light. This, since this is birefringent for circular polarization state, the orientation of this doesn't matter because you're defining it relative to a circular state. Right, so there's, there's no preferred orientation. Okay, so we talk about the angle through which the polarization gets rotated. And we can say that that comes from the birefringence in the left and right circular polarization. So we have a different index of refraction for left and right circular polarization. And then the path length is 
um, that index times the thickness times k 2 pi over lambda. And we have a delay for the left and right that give rise to a, a change in the angle of polarization. So beta is the angle through which the polarization gets rotated. We can describe how much it gets rotated per centimeter or per millimeter per unit thickness of the material. It's the specific rotary power, the beta divided by the thickness. Okay, so quartz has a specific rotary power of uh, about 22 degrees per millimeter. So how much thickness of quartz is necessary to rotate polarization by 45 degrees? So that's straightforward. That's just a matter of dividing 45 degrees by the specific rotary power, and that will give us a thickness of about 2 millimeters. What's the polarization state of light that goes through quartz and then gets retroreflected back? Any thoughts? Does it get rotated in this example if I have a two millimeter thickness of quartz, light goes through, it gets rotated by 45 degrees. If I send it back, does it get rotated by an additional 45 degrees or does it get unrotated? Additional. So here's a thickness of quartz. Here's light going in. A couple things to think about. The Left and right circular polarization propagate at different rates through the quartz. That's what gives rise to the rotation. When I reflect the light, those polarization states change. Right? Left circular becomes right circular. Right circular becomes left circular. So the component of light that was, say, right circularly polarized goes through this quartz, reflects, is now left circularly polarized, and goes through the quartz. The light that was left circular goes through the quartz as left circular, comes back as right circular. So each component is going to be delayed once and advanced once relative to the other. So the light should come back and have the same polarization state. Mark? Wouldn't the chirality switch to a crystal dome? So you go through it in one direction where it rotates in one direction? No, because the crystal isn't being viewed in the mirror. The crystal, a left-handed, let's see, a spring that rotate, or say my hand, the curl of my hand, is right-handed regardless of how I orient it relative to you. Another way of saying it is um, time reversal symmetry. Right? If the light goes through and gets rotated in one direction, time reversal symmetry says if you take that output polarization state and send it in, it should reverse itself. Okay, so 45 degrees in one direction, minus 45 in the other. And you get no effect after going double passing the quartz. OK, so that's in contrast to another type of optical activity called the Faraday effect. Okay, so we'll see that in just a second. But before we get to that, um, let's put together the Jones matrix for optical activity. Um, so let's find it for a specific value first. Corn syrup that rotates the polarization by 90 degrees. So a couple ways to do this. We can take a few examples where we know what to expect. 
we know, for example, that if we put light in that is horizontally polarized, so it's polarization along x, rotation by 90 degrees should give me polarization along y. And we know if we start with light polarized along y, rotation by 90 degrees should give me minus x polarization. So whatever the ABCD matrix is for that Jones matrix, when multiplied by a Jones vector for y polarization, should give you minus x. So we can go through and we can solve this. This tells me that um, A equals 0 um, doesn't tell me anything about B. The equations I get are A equals 0 and C equals 1 for there. For this second equation, I get um, minus B equals 1 and equals minus 1, and d equals 0. All right, so I have a matrix. Um, 0, minus 1, 1, 0. I could also just say, well, it's rotating it by 90 degrees, so let me just, I already have a, a matrix that does rotation. It's the rotation matrix. So let me just plug in 90 degrees. Right. So um, you could also say this rotation matrix describes the rotation of a vector by theta. We'll use that as our Jones matrix for optical activity that rotates it by theta. Okay, How can you differentiate between uh, something that's optically active and something that's just birefringent? If they both are rotating the polarization of light by the same amount. So a half wave plate and a piece of quartz that has birefringent, that has optical activity. Um, let's say they both rotate the polarization by 10 degrees. How can you tell them apart? They both look like little glass windows. You put them between cross polarizers. They both rotate the polarization by the same amount in this orientation. Gregory? Yeah, save that answer for the next couple slides, because you're ahead of what we're talking about. Actually, both of these obey time reversal symmetry and would undo the effect in going in reverse. But we saw with the corn syrup, which was optically active, it was independent of orientation, the amount of rotation, whereas the wave plate was not. So if you rotate either your wave plates, or I mean your material, or you rotate your polarizers you're analyzing them through, um, the optical, optically active one will produce an effect that's independent of its orientation, where the wave plate has an orientation-dependent effect. Okay, so the Faraday effect 
is a form of optical activity that's induced by an external magnetic field. Okay. We said that chirality gave rise to the difference in index of refraction for the left and right circular polarization. Magnetic fields circulate, right? so it's probably not that surprising that they could give rise to some effect that's similar to that of a chiral molecule. So we described the rotation angle of light going through a Faraday active material as, again, proportional to the thickness of the material it goes through. And the specific rotary power, then, is produced by an external magnetic field. So there's what we call the Verde coefficient times the external magnetic field. And that gives an amount of rotation per unit length. So Verde constant is a property of the material. It's a pro property of the glass or crystal. You can look it up in tables, or you can measure it. And then B is an externally applied magnetic field. It can either be from a permanent magnet or from a, an electromagnet. And B is not explicitly drawn as a vector, listed as a vector here. But it's a magnetic field. It's a field, so it has a direction. Okay, and so the sign of rotation depends on whether propagation is along the magnetic field or counter-propagating to the magnetic field. Okay, so terbium gallium garnet is a material that has a very large Verde constant. So it's commonly used in what we call a, uh, a Faraday rotator. Its Verde constant is 40 radians per tesla per meter. And so we multiply it by a magnetic field we get a specific rotary power, an angle per unit length. And that's at 1064 nanometers. What is the field necessary to rotate the light by 45 degrees in 3 centimeters of length? Okay, so this is basically a dimensional analysis problem. Right? We want 45 degree or pi over 4 rotation. So we'll divide that by the, specific, by the uh, Verde constant. That gives us a magnetic field per meter per tesla, or times tesla, I guess. So then we multiply by the thickness, and we get a required magnetic field. So 0.65 tesla. Um, is that a big field? Small field? What's the Earth's magnetic field? Yeah. So the Earth's magnetic field is like a Gauss. It's like a one ten thousandth of a tesla, I think. So this is a very large magnetic field. You need big permanent magnets. Um, so what this means is, there are, we'll see in a second that there's devices based off this Faraday effect that are in almost every laser experiment. It's a very useful effect because you can, well, we'll see in a minute. Um, I don't want to give away the punchline quite yet. But you end up with these uh, giant magnets right after your laser on all the optical tables. And it has a couple interesting results. One is that if you lean over an optical table to screw something in, you'll very often get sucked in. This happens to me all the time because I have a metal belt buckle. Right? So this happens, I lean over and all of a sudden I'm pulled in. The other one is you're carrying a screwdriver and all of a sudden it gets pulled out of your hand or maybe not pulled out of your hand but it all of a sudden just grabs a hold of these magnets. Um, okay, so 
what is the polarization state of light that passes through the TGG described here and then is retroreflected back? Right, so going forward, we know it's rotated by 45 degrees. That was the requirement of the problem. Now, we argued before that time reversal symmetry tells us that if you have light that goes in and gets rotated by 45 degrees, when you reverse this, it should undo the effect. Is that what happens here? Gregory? I wasn't raising my hand. No, but you already answered the question. You already answered the question, so. This is an example of an effect that, on first glance, does not obey time reversal symmetry. Okay. When you send the light back through, it actually gets rotated by an additional 45 degrees. Okay, now, it's not quite as uh, physically meaningful as not obeying time reversal symmetry. We can understand it. There's a couple of different ways we can understand that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the amount of rotation depended on the direction of the magnetic field relative to the direction of propagation. So when you change the direction of the propagation, if we don't change the direction of the magnetic field, then the sign of the rotation changes. As a result, as we're going backwards, we get more rotation instead of less. Now, in terms of time reversal symmetry, if you reverse the direction of propagation, you also need to reverse the direction of the magnetic field. And that's what would happen if you also reversed the spin of all the electrons and the current in any wires producing the magnet. I mean, if you really changed the uh, sign of time for everything in the experiment, this would obey time reversal symmetry. But in practice, when we look and we say, OK, just change the direction of propagation, we're not changing the quantum state of all the atoms that have uh, produced the magnetic field that produced that effect. So I said you can build a very useful device with it. That device is called a Faraday isolator. And here's a picture of uh, the very basic elements of a Faraday isolator. Start with a linear polarizer. Then you have a Faraday active material that rotates the light. A permanent magnet. It doesn't have to be permanent. It could be if you have a pulsed laser system, you could have an electromagnetic magnet that you pulse at the same rate as the laser. But um, you generally don't have CW electromagnets, because in order to get that large of a magnetic field, you need more power than you can. You'd be dissipating a lot of power in the electromagnet. So usually a large, rare earth permanent magnet around this. And then an output polarizer that's aligned to the direction of the rotated light. Okay, so in this example, if the input light is linearly polarized and passes through this first polarizer, It'll get rotated and pass through the second polarizer. If that light is sent back, it gets rotated in the not back along the original polarization axis, but 45 degrees in the other direction. And so it ends up being blocked by this polarizer. So this device will let light through in one direction and will block it in the other direction. So it's an isolator. We saw you could make an isolator from a linear polarizer and a quarter wave plate. We call that a pseudo-isolator, because while it would block light that was retroreflected, it wouldn't work if you did anything that changed the polarization state downstream. But here, we can, we can muck up the polarization state. Any light we send in that goes through this polarizer will rotate, will be linearly polarized, rotate 45 degrees, and will not pass. This will only pass light in one direction, regardless of polarization state, because it's got polarizers on the front and back that define the polarization state. 
So it's also called an optical diode. For similar reasons, it only passes light in one direction. Now in practice, there's often also an additional quarter wave plate here that rotates the light an additional 45 degrees. And that's just so your input and output polarization states can be 0 and 90 degrees, just for convenience of, uh, of direction. So this is what it would look like. This is the big magnet around it. So you see these things, these big cylinders. And you usually put them right after the laser. So that if you put anything in an element, either that's going to be an experiment or when you're just aligning it, you don't want light to go back into the laser. It can damage the laser. So these are put right after the lasers. What are the dimensions of that? Are we talking about centimeters or? Well, so it depends greatly on, um, on the size of the, on the diameter here. But so a typical one, a, a reasonable size one might be this big. Um, if your light is going through a fiber, if you have a laser that's fiber coupled, then the whole thing can be integrated inside something smaller than a pencil. Well, this is a permanent magnet, so it doesn't, and it's not necessarily absorbing power either. Typically, these polarizers use uh, cube polarizers, so the light actually gets uh, kicked out, reflected, not absorbed. So um, oftentimes, you can use this to separate out a forward and a backward going beam. So in an experiment where you have light coming back to your laser that you want to measure, you can use a you can use the light that's rejected by this polarizer. If it's a cube beam splitter, then it will reflect one polarization. You can't see it here. There oftentimes, there are little windows here that, that let the, the rejected polarization out in a separate beam. OK, so um, what we'll talk about next time, we have a few minutes to talk about modulators. So we'll talk about devices where the birefringence is electrically controlled. It's obviously useful for imposing electrical signals onto light. So think telecommunications. Um, and then, like I said, we'll have some extra time. It sounds like the consensus, or maybe not quite consensus, but majority decision was to review and do maybe problems. Okay, so we'll do that. <laughs>